Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story, and it is by Patricia Sanjin, with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are in Chapter 6, Arrival in Tangier. From our very earliest years, I think there were unseen, unrecognized forces at work in our young lives. We had arrived in England just after the end of the First World War, at a time when interest in missionary work had suddenly revived. The large, well-known societies such as China Inland Mission and the Japanese Evangelistic Band were in urgent need of funds to support new work, and well-to-do Christian ladies would hold meetings in their spacious drawing rooms. It was quite the fashion for those gathered to come forward at the end, deeply moved by the appeal, and drop their pearl necklaces and valuable jewelry into the collecting plate. I had no idea how my mother ever got into such a gathering for she told me about it only many years later when I myself was grown up. The details were forgotten, and I only know that she sat, rather miserable, at the back and realized that she was out of place. She had nothing to give. Then almost like a voice came the thought, What is the most precious thing that you possess? My three children, she replied. Her heart lifted, and she walked boldly to the front and offered her three babies to God for the mission field. Oliver and John were not yet born. And that, in those days, was no small sacrifice. There were no short-termers, no easy furloughs, and so many died. Yet she secretly held to her resolve. In the margin of her Bible, opposite Psalm 84, verse 3, Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. She had written, Only yielded up in the place of sacrifice, Are they perfectly safe? It must have been hard for her sometimes to believe that her gift had been accepted, for we were anything but holy children. But sometimes at school, in the evenings, my aunt read aloud from the great missionary biographies of that time, of Hudson Taylor, Miss Carmichael, the Misses Cable in French, and my father often brought lesser lights to stay. Something must have rubbed off on us, for I remember a day when Farham and I, aged about twelve and thirteen, sat dangling our legs from the top post of the beech tree, swaying happily in the wind, and we decided that when we grew up we would be missionaries, provided we could be together. We envisioned enormous hardships. We were probably right in those days, and thought we'd better prepare. So the Hotspot Club came into being with six members. It was a sort of get-together for training in athletics, and despite desperate deeds of courage and self-denial, such as swimming a mile, sleeping on the floor under the bed with no bedclothes, balance walking along the high gable roof of an outside toilet, or scratching our arms and signing our names in blood. The meetings took place behind a screen in my bedroom. It was a great squash with Joan and Peter, whose parents lived in Egypt, who spent much of the holiday with us and we needed refreshments. We found a recipe for dandelion wine, which appeared economical. Dandelions were plentiful in the churchyard. And we followed it to the letter. My mother did not take it seriously, and mercifully the bottles burst loudly all over the room in the middle of the night. According to my uncle, who lapped up the few drops left, we should all have been roaring drunk had we attempted a glass full each. We also did some practical work of our own devising. Farm and I would go down on an evening to the local lodging house with an old violin to sing some of our favorite hymns to the tramps and others sitting around. At other times, we would go to the hop fields, gather up the children, and another Sunday school took place one day each week after school in our garage for children from nearby council estates, some of them arriving in the proms. 
I was thrilled a year or two later when I went to speak at a women's meeting in the neighborhood. And an older woman came up to me and said, My brothers and I used to come to your garage Sunday school. And I'll always remember what you said. We grew up, but the vision never quite faded. Hazel went to Westfield College in London and gained a degree in French and Latin. It was almost taken for granted that she would come back and work with our aunt at Clarendon. But while doing a year at teaching training at Cambridge, she decided she would first like to teach abroad for two years. There were three possibilities, but she chose Lebanon. Because as a child, the words from Isaiah, the glory of Lebanon, had fascinated her, and it appealed to her. She joined the staff at the British Syrian Training College for Girls in Beirut. After one year, the war broke out, and she stayed on for another five years. She came home to teach at Clarendon from 1944 to 1948, but then returned, and in 1950 became the headmaster of the training college with the school attached. She remained in Lebanon until she retired in 1981 with intervals at home, and in 1971 was awarded the MBE for her services to education in the Middle East and decorated by the president of Lebanon. Farham did a degree in modern languages at Cambridge and then felt the call of God strongly to switch over to medicine. Through a friend, he became interested in a small mission hospital in Tangier, Morocco, but the war had put an end to his hopes of joining the team in the foreseeable future. He trained at a London hospital surviving the Blitz, and on qualifying, he was called up and expected to be sent overseas. He went for his interview. What have you planned to do if the war had not interrupted you, he was asked. I was planning to work in a mission hospital in Tangier, he replied. He was told to leave the room. After a short time, he was called back. We want you to go to Tangier immediately, said the officer in charge, and try to improve relationships between England and Morocco. Farham left as soon as possible on a convoy to Gibraltar and crossed over to Tangier. He remained there for over 30 years. In the end of his time of service, he was awarded the OBE for improving relationships between Britain and Morocco, though actually his own overriding concern was a relationship between God and the men and women around him. After four years of working under an older doctor, a staff crisis developed and Farham was asked to become medical director. And one year later, in 1949, I decided to join him. He needed me at that point. The valiant old missionary who was housekeeping for him was becoming very tired. Farham, loving and outgoing and friendly to all, was beginning to long for a wife, and too many single ladies would have been glad to have filled the role. He wrote urging me to come, and my parents were willing. So, oblivious to formalities, I packed and went. It did not seem to have occurred to either of us that it was not the way to join a mission, and I received a rather surprised letter from headquarters shortly after my arrival. But I was there, and there was no turning back. I remained an associate of the mission through all my years of service. The nurse's home sat high on a cliff overlooking the Straits of Gibraltar, and the clean white hospital building seemed like a paradise on first arrival. The mimosa trees foamed golden in my garden, and my bedroom seemed full of sunshine and oranges. But as far as I remember, I was sent into the outpatient next morning, which was quite an eye-opener. There was, always seemed to be a preponderance of cheerful, grubby little boys with a lot to say, and I tried to communicate with my hands and eyebrows, there being no immediate or organized language study for the hospital workers in those days. Nor had the term culture shock had been invented, but no doubt we suffered from it. Sometimes at the end of a hot, exhausting day, I would go up to the flat roof and gaze out over the dark Mediterranean to the far lights of Spain and wonder. 
I had not been prepared for the ways of homesickness, nor for the discovery of missionaries, myself included, and the converts were not always as saintly as I had imagined. There were times when I had was tempted to question whether it was all worth it. I vividly remember one incident that steadied my sense of values at a time when I needed the reminder. It was a stifling afternoon, and in two small single wards downstairs, two expatriate men were dying. I was specialing them and going from one to another. In one room lay an Englishman, and his wife sat beside him. In a quiet, dispassionate voice, she told me what had happened. Her husband was a trainer of Arab racing steeds, and they lived in a house up in the mountains surrounded by beauty and luxury. Cocktail parties were held in his house night after night, and the wealthy population flocked to his house. All was going well until one day he complained of a violent headache and went to see his doctor. He was warned that his blood pressure was exceedingly high and told, among other things, to stop drinking alcohol. A few nights later, he woke in a panic. I can't lie here thinking about death, he said to his wife. I must take something to help me forget. He went downstairs, drank heavily, and had a stroke. That afternoon, he died without regaining consciousness. As I stood looking down on him, I felt acutely sad and depressed. So much in the years behind, all that life could give of riches and pleasures. But for the future, he had felt only fear and hopelessness. So what had it all amounted to? But one stride across the passage in another small room lay Don Samuel from Spain. We were still in the era of history when a Protestant could be imprisoned for his faith, and Don Samuel had spent months in a cell. On his release, he had joined his wife and children in Tangier, and it had been a joyful reunion with the hope of a happy, united family life. But within a few weeks, it became clear that the poor diet and harsh conditions had taken their toll. He was already suffering from advanced cancer of the stomach, and that afternoon he too lay dying with his wife and family sitting beside him. But just as he seemed to be drawing his last breath, a look of incredible joy dawned on his face. Fetch the doctor, he whispered. I want him to see what I see. I ran to outpatients and Farnham ran back with me. We were just in time. Don Samuel was pointing to the ceiling. Look, look, he was saying in Spanish. You must see it. To the light, to the light. I'm going to Jesus. Oh, can't you see it? He was gone, and we were left staring at the whitewashed ceiling. But some glory lingered in that quiet room, and the message hung in the air. So little in the years behind, so much of hardship and persecution and pain, but ahead of beauty and fulfillment that we could not even begin to imagine. And wasn't that really what life was all about? Yet in my own mind, I was still unsure. I had read about missionary biographies, and their heroes and heroines had always seemed to have a call. Some special verse, some definite word from God, or some clear light, whereas, as far as I could see, I had simply done the obvious next thing. I prayed about it and truly desired to do God's will, but there had been no special confirmation, and the thought nagged me. Had God really called me and sent me, or had it just been a case of doing my own thing? And then something happened. Almost a year previously, a young man had been carried down from a little town in the mountain with acute osteomyelitis. And at first, Farnham had thought that the leg must be amputated. But after four operations, Muhammad was recovering, and now it was almost time to go home. We were free in those days to hold ward services, and Muhammad had understood a great deal. His home was in a small town in the mountains some two hours away by car, and it was agreed that we should take him home. It was June and very hot. 
We set out at about 5 a.m., and we were soon bumping along the windy mountain road with a deep valley on our left and great rocky peaks rising overhead. Poppies flamed along the roadside, and the air smelt of camphor bushes. We stopped high in the hills and breakfast in the shade of the olive tree, and here Muhammad began to talk. Why do we have to come all that way, he said suddenly, for healing and to hear this message? Why doesn't one of you come up and live amongst us? There are houses to be had in our town. Barham and Muhammad opened the New Testament and were soon absorbed in that same message, but I sat a little apart and turned to my normal daily reading. I was studying the book of Ezekiel, and I I happened to have reached chapter 34. My sheep wandered on the mountains on every high hill, and none did seek or search after them. I looked around at the landscape, sun-kissed hill beyond hill, misty valley beyond valley, still bathed in the shadows of early morning, and nestled in the folds I could see the blue-green of the prickly pear enclosures, each guarding a tiny village, and none did search or seek after them. Suddenly, undramatically, but very surely I knew that this was what I had been waiting for, the unexpected turning in the path and the promised voice, This is the way, walk ye in it. He never promised us a voice when the path lay clear and straight ahead. He gives us common sense and normal human indictions and the quiet sense of his guidance. But when we come to the fork in the road, then the promise rings true. Thine ears shall hear a voice behind thee saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right or to the left. At the turning he will speak so clear and we wonder and hesitate. Then surely it is safe to go ahead with a prayer of faith. I want to do your will, and I think that this is right. If I am making a mistake, please put out your hand and stop me. And is it possible that he will answer that prayer? If we are leading a loved child along a road, a child who wanted to stay close to us and have mistakenly turned aside, is it conceivable that we would not call to him and reach out and draw him back? And surely he, who is the father of fatherhood and the source of motherhood, will do no less. I did not say anything at the time, for there were problems. The hospital was short of nurses, and I was housekeeping for farm. Housekeeping for farm meant coping with a never-ending stream of visitors, tribal patients from the mountains vaguely needing accommodations, mothers with sick babies who could not wait till the next day, bright lads who came for teaching, missionaries traveling to the south, just calling in for a chatter, leisurely tourists who wanted to look around the hospital. Sometimes a number would converge at once, producing what a Swiss helper once described as un rude salade. But Farnham, however weary, was always welcoming, always apparently pleased to see them, the only problem being that he was so often not there. Well, tomorrow is Chapter 7, Family Joys and Sorrows. I hope you're enjoying this book as much as I am. And I love you. I'm praying for you. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.